Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. The sight of the world's best cyclists pedaling through fields of sunflowers, past historic churches, and over majestic mountain ranges in the Tour de France is enough to make any American want to do two things, book a trip to Europe and get the bicycle out of the garage. Cycling is often prescribed as a low-impact alternative for running for people with hip, leg, or foot injuries, but it's a demanding exercise all its own. In today's episode of Move Forward Radio, physical therapist Eric Moen describes the physical challenges facing those athletes trying to compete at the highest level, day in and day out, through the month-long Tour de France, and facing those of us who might not have spent consecutive days on a bike since we were kids. Whether you're looking to become a better cyclist or hoping to get off the stationary bike in the gym and out on the road, this is the episode for you. As always, information from our guest is for informational purposes only, and shouldn't be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. With that, here's our interview with Eric Moen. Eric, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background treating cyclists? My background treating cyclists, I guess, starts me being a racer. Before I was a physical therapist, and being a racer, you come into all sorts of issues such as potential overuse injuries and acute injuries. And so you start dealing with the realities of some of the things that relate to bicycle racing and just being on the bicycle day in and day out. Having gone through physical therapy school, it seemed like there was a nice emerging little niche in working with bicyclists. Having the sports background and sports knowledge seemed like a natural progression into taking the physical therapy practice to tailor towards the needs of cyclists. And and essentially, once I got out of physical therapy school, I started working with biomechanics, working people on their bicycles and and working through bicycle-related injuries. At that time, I continued to race and continued to coach. So building my expertise and background in the sport. To this day, I have my own physical therapy practice where the emphasis is on endurance athletics with special emphasis on bicycling, bicycling biomechanics, bicycling injuries. You mentioned experiencing some of those typical injuries, overuse injuries. What are typical cycling injuries, especially at the elite level? Well, cycling injuries, I typically classify them into three different areas. One are acute injuries, and, and these are injuries where I jokingly say where blood is involved, falling off the bike, crashing down. There's chronic injuries where it's stress and strain injuries repeated over time. And then there's pain syndromes where essentially you have a pain related to holding a position or posture on the bike and the pain goes away as soon as you stop. With our chronic injuries, those pains don't necessarily stop when you get off the bike. With regards to elite cyclists, elite cyclists primarily are classified by having injuries that are more acute in nature, where they're more involved in crashes. Typically, by the time they've become elite cyclists, they've worked through some of the issues that lead to chronic types of injuries, but their primary exposure, if you will, is to acute injuries. When there is an elite cyclist, do we look at something like the Tour de France and we think about a multi-day race like that? What is the physical therapist's role in keeping that cyclist at a high level throughout the competition? 
Well, there's various roles within a professional cycling organization, professional cycling team, and one certainly is for the physical therapists or in the European setting where most professional bike racing is, is the physiotherapist. And the physiotherapist role is essentially the, the body mechanic, and that's there to assist and help with recovery processes for the cyclist. When we have a multi-day race, it's a significantly taxing event on the body where the goal of the, the racer and the physical therapist immediately after event is to work on recovery strategies for the rider such that they can have a great day the following day. Those recoveries has obviously led to some of the scandal around cycling in recent years with PED use and blood doping and all of that. What are the holistic ways, what are the ways that a physical therapist naturally and within the rules would help a cyclist recover in that short time span? Certainly there's been a lot of talk about the performance-enhancing drugs and, and all of that, and really the origins of some of that were to gain a competitive edge outside of, we'll say, the holistic treatment strategies. It's found that when you do a multi-day race in the middle of a competitive calendar that you can make significant degradation in your physiology, essentially chronic exposure to overtraining, and that really saps your, saps your body. And so historically, people have tried to use pharmaceutical means to try to stimulate their physiology such that they can maintain some level of health. But when we look at what we'll say are legal, holistic approaches to recovery, things that professional cyclists have been using as of late include compression strategies, such as compression socks, compression tights, use of a, a, a device called people refer to as space legs, which are a pneumatic compressive device worn on the legs to help encourage vascular drainage or lymphatic drainage from, from the lower extremities after heavy exertion. Things traditionally such as massage, effleurage type strategies for, for leg recovery have been traditionally used. Also, when, we, when a cyclist maintains a certain position on the bike for four to six hours, certainly those are positions that are not so normal for the body to maintain and attain. So the physical therapist will sometimes utilize joint mobilization or such techniques to help improve normal uh, functionality of the body. You used a great term earlier talking about the physical therapist as the body mechanic. In the course of a multi-day race like that, when cyclists are on the bike for that long, how much tune-up time do they need? I mean, are we talking hours? Are we talking one hour? How much time is going to be spent focused on that recovery to be prepared for the next day? Well, when you talk about recovery strategies, there's nutrition and hydration strategies. There's physical strategies. One thing we didn't talk about are things such as ice baths for lower extremities. But typically what people do is their recovery strategies begin once they get off the bike. And they continue to work on those things throughout the afternoon and evening. So typically a cyclist who starts a race at, say, 10 in the morning completes completes around 4 o'clock per se. And then essentially they're working till 8 or 9 on recovery strategies, which might include time with a physical therapist, physio, massage therapist, sometimes chiropractic is used, and perhaps use of compressive garments. Those processes all take upwards of uh, approximately four hours, three to four hours uh, after a race. So the racer's job is definitely not done after they step off the bike. Their approach towards recovery include probably that three to four hour period after the bike race ends it. When you're in your practice, when you're treating those 
weekend warrior types. They're not elite, but they're into cycling. They're highly competitive within their own ability. Do their injuries compare to these elite level, or are we really talking two totally different classes of athlete and two totally different classes of exertion and workload, and therefore two totally different kinds of aches and pains and physical challenges? Well, when we compare weekend warriors to elite athletes, there's been a couple of research papers that do comparisons to injuries with, within those populations. And what we find is that with racers, their their primary injuries and issues are around acute injuries. And when we look at our weekend warriors, so to speak, or our recreational cyclists, they tend to be more hallmarked by chronic injuries and pain syndromes or, or just uh, chronic aches and pains. When we look at our non-elite, you can have local riders and racers who go pretty well. You can have people who are just starting out to people who have been at it for 20 to 30 years. When we classify those people, when we look at our people who have good experience, they're typically like our elite, where they end up with more of the acute type injuries. But what people can end up doing through the aging process is they can develop intolerances of bike positions that they used to be able to maintain because they've lost flexibility or strength or the time dedicated to the training to tolerate advanced positions on the bike and therefore get into chronic aches and pains. When we compare weekend warriors to elite cyclists, elite cyclists have, you know, they're usually athletes who started riding bikes at maybe 14 years of age, 12 years of age, and have stayed consistent with their bicycle training for 10, 15 years at upwards of 40 hours a week on the bike. That's an important training background to make an effective comparison between the two groups. Also, that level of training, if you're able to train at that level, it means that you have figured out some of the issues with regards to maybe poor flexibility, proper or poor fit of the bike, such that it allows you to train at that level. So you've sort of gone through those rudimentary steps of athletic preparation to get you to that level. With our weekend warriors, sometimes they're people who have just taken up the sport at a later age, and so oftentimes they have poor flexibility poor strength and coordination specific to the sport. They're brand new to the process of fitting on a bike. And really, when we talk about getting going in bicycling, we have to remember that bicycles weren't around when the body was developed. And so bicycling in and of itself is not necessarily a task that the body was made to do. And so there has to be some level of preparation and accommodation to bicycling such that you can tolerate time on the bike. The other challenge with bike, because bicycling is so relatively non-weight-bearing or pounding per se, such as comparison to running, you can stay on the bike for a longer period of time, which tends to get us into trouble. And so there's sometimes this turn-off switch is a little bit altered, which allows us to get into injuries a little more quickly. I want to talk about what a recreational cyclist needs to do to get prepared and try and avoid some of those injuries. But but before we do that, do those injuries tend to be in typical parts of the body? I mean, is it obviously it would be legs more than arms, for example, but I mean, are we talking hip more than knee, knee more than ankle? Are we talking muscles or joints? Typically for a recreational cyclist, are there sort of two or three common injuries? 
Yeah, when you do a review of literature, scientific literature, just overviewing bicycle injuries or overuse type injuries related to cycling, problems surrounding the anterior knee or patellofemoral joint are the most common, and secondarily, lumbar spine. And we find that to be absolutely true in our clinical practice. Our primary, our injury is patellofemoral joint or knee joint, and then secondarily, back strain is a common injury or pain complaint. And so those are the, are the big two. The other issues that people complain of are neck pain or and then also numb hands and feet and then also also saddle area numbness or pain. And so when we look at adapting to time on the bike, you really are to have to consider our three different contacts to the bike, feet to the pedals, our butt to the saddle, or I should say pelvis to the saddle, and then also also hands to handlebars. And those three different positions and weight-bearing surfaces are have a lot to do with uh, presence or absence of injuries. Is it just a matter then of taking things slow and, as you referred to earlier, not because of the theming ease of cycling, trying to do too much too soon? Or in many cases, are there actual exercises, for example, that a recreational cyclist who's either just starting out or maybe has had a layoff, they're just getting back to it this summer after a layoff over the winter, things that they can do to try to better prepare themselves before they get on the bike in the first place? Well, for people who are fairly new to the sport of bicycling, there's a few things that we look at. We look at, first and foremost, is the bike equipment well fit to the person. And bike fit and bike fitting processes are increasing in popularity throughout the United States, especially in the Pacific Northwest. So there's a lot of people who can assist you in getting started with regards to improved positioning on the bicycle. Secondarily, when we look at preparing well for the bike, we look at we look at flexibility. Probably for our people who are adults who are new to bicycling, their primary areas of inflexibility or poor mobility for the performance of cycling include that of the hamstrings and that of the mid-back or the thoracic spine. The thoracic spine people or mid-back limitations oftentimes are postural adaptations to spending too much time on a keyboard. So it limits our ability to assume normal and more flat back type positions for a bicycle. So when we talk about range of motion or stretching type exercises specific to cycling, oftentimes our cyclists are best served by performing hamstring stretches and mid-back flexibility or mobility type exercises. Interestingly enough, we find that, at least in our clinical practice and our population of cyclists, that even though we have a large percentage of our injured cyclists are front of the knee pain people, quadricep range of motion is rarely limited, which is kind of an interesting finding. But nonetheless, their primary limitations include hamstring and mid-back. The other component of preparation includes strength. So riding a bicycle up, up a hill or into a headwind or for prolonged periods of time definitely requires strength. Our areas, bicycling in and of itself, riding up a hill is essentially a strength exercise. So sometimes it would suffice to work on strength just by gradually building your times on the bicycle. There are certainly strength exercises one can do to improve their ability to maintain bicycle positions. Oftentimes for the adult, it includes improving simply their back strength. The cycling in and of itself will oftentimes take care of leg strength just fine. The other piece is coordination. Coordination is an important part of bicycling and really correlates to pedaling. It's not just as easy to pedal a bike as one might think. Pedaling the bike, when we talk about bicycle pedaling, our ideal 
bicycling cadences approach that of 90 revolutions per minute for various reasons, for, do, for reasons of muscle stress and strain, for reasons of improving cardiovascular stimulus. But really, our base cadence that one should attain for endurance cycling is closer to 90 revolutions per minute. And that's that's oftentimes very difficult for people. And so that process takes practice. And there's various ways of improving that skill, which oftentimes includes things like, for maybe a person who wants to be more advanced cyclist, includes things like single leg pedaling or high cadence style pedaling or intervals to improve their ability to pedal at 90 revolutions per minute. So let me hit you with this question. I want to be a recreational cyclist. I haven't been on the bike in a long time. But every day in the gym, I go and I sit on the stationary bike for 30 minutes. Am I prepared to now get on a bike for 30 minutes outside and put rubber to the road, or is that not actually relative preparation? Well, it's it's what I'd maybe call better than nothing training stimulus. The challenge with the gym bikes is that, one, it probably won't necessarily represent the position that you'll be attaining on your bicycle out on the road. Secondarily, there's ways of cheating your load on the gym bicycle such that it doesn't represent what your typical experience on the road will be. Just simple stories of people, maybe spin instructors or people who've been very gym-based bicyclists thinking they're well-prepared to go out and ride on the road, go out and ride on the road with people who are experienced on the road, and find that they're woefully prepared for life on the road. So, like I said, it's a bit of a better-than-nothing preparation phase, but if you do utilize the gym bicycles, to best prepare for time out on the road is to try your best to replicate your bicycle position on the exercise equipment, and then secondarily try to replicate your typical load stimulus on the exercise bicycle that you'll be experiencing outside. You talk about that positioning quite a bit at this point. So when you're fitting a rider for their bike or vice versa, what are you looking at? What what are the things you're trying to achieve and, and to make sure that that bike is fit for the rider? Well, when we do a process of bike fit, the bike fit is centered around the three weight-bearing surface weight-bearing surfaces, our feet to the pedals, our uh, pelvis to the saddle, and our hands to the handlebars. And we start at the feet, work our way on up to the saddle, and then on out to the bars. A primary concern with our bicycling is the ability to produce torque to the drivetrain. And so how our foot connects to the pedal in relationship to where the pelvis sits is a very important relationship. Once we get that squared away, then we set up the handlebars to meet the person's anatomical concerns, such as length of torso, length of arm. And then also trying to figure out the goals of the rider. How we set up a person who wants to race is different than how we set up a person who just wants to do a 25-mile charity ride. The bike fit setups have implications as to how the equipment might handle as well. And, And so those are things that we consider in the bike fitting process. The other very important piece is can the bicyclist safely handle their equipment on their chosen surface of which they want to ride, such as if you're a mountain cyclist, you might change your position a little bit to best allow the ability to lift a front wheel over a log or a rock or whatnot. For a road cyclist, we're trying to get them well positioned and balanced over a bike such that they can handle higher speed, turning, cornering, descending or coming off of hills or climbing up hills. 
Cycling is often described as sort of a great low-impact alternative to running. You sort of mentioned that earlier, the pounding of running. You can feel the toll that it takes. Is there any population that cycling might not be good for or any sort of unintended side effects of going that direction? One of the things that you've seen a lot in literature lately is of people, we'll call them chronic cyclists or lifetime cyclists, not necessarily having the best bone density. And there's been a lot of, we'll say, attention to that lately. And there's a nice review of of a paper that looked at bone density in cyclists. And they said that cycling doesn't necessarily promote bone density such as that of power sports, such as gymnastics or weightlifting or running, per se. They couldn't find necessarily that it diminished bone density. They just, after this recent review, said that it was didn't necessarily promote it, but didn't promote bone loss. When you take a look at bone density changes, you have to look at things in addition to just weight-bearing stimulus. We know with our cycling, there's many biomechanical studies that demonstrate bicycling compared to walking and running. There's much less compressive loading of the lower extremity in cycling than there is with walking, than there is with running, especially with running. So if you're looking at just the weight-bearing stimulus for the promotion of bone growth, you could see that cycling doesn't necessarily provide that per se. When you look at other sports such as swimming, swimming's in pretty much the same boat, so to speak. It's a sport that doesn't necessarily promote bone growth, but it doesn't do anything necessarily to accelerate the loss of bone. The thing we do know that accelerates uh, loss of bone is hormonal changes associated with overtraining. And if you're a person who's chronically overtraining or chronically, say, with like women who are amenorrheic, we know that women with amenorrhea tend to demineralize faster than women with normal menses. Similarly with males who become hypogonadotrophic, which is essentially a chronic overtrained state, we can most likely attain that as well. So when you look at an athlete, you have to look, are they being healthy with their exposure to exercise or are they being unhealthy? When we excessively exercise, that can be unhealthy, which may lead to bone demineralization. There was another study that looked at elite athletes in general and found that elite athletes compared to normal populations had a higher quantity of people with eating disorders. And so you kind of have to look at what's the bigger source of bone density change. Is it just the cycling in and of itself? I don't think so. It's perhaps other things that athletes are exposed to, such as chronic overtraining or eating disorders. So let's finish with some parting advice for somebody who sees the Tour de France on TV this summer and inspired to get back on the bike. What are the first three things that that person should do to have a healthy summer riding their bike? Go slowly. One of the things that Sage advice is that you have to learn how to ride slowly before you can ride fast. And so when you uh, are looking to get out, certainly things like the Tour de France are very inspirational and want you to, and inspire you to go out and, and ride your bike fast. But really, appropriate preparation is such a critical thing for any endurance sport, whether it's running, swimming, Nordic skiing, cycling. So take it slowly. The other thing is equipment. Bicycling is certainly equipment-dependent sport, and so proper positioning, proper equipment, proper positioning of the proper equipment is really a bit of an important thing. And then thirdly, pedaling skills. One of the first things a person who gets into bicycling, one of the first things that they can do to really help improve their longevity in the sport is learn how to 
pedal the bicycle well. So those are probably the big three things, the, the go slowly, pedal the bike well, and appropriate equipment. So what you're telling me is it's not as easy as riding a bike to ride a bike. That's absolutely true. And the example of our triathletes who come to bicycle, you know, quite a few come to bicycling uh, as adults, it's really a very steep learning curve. And so what I try to do for people is lessen that, lessen the steepness of that learning curve so that they can avoid some of the common pitfalls of exposure to injury as they can continue to ride happily into the sunset, if you will. Excellent. Eric Mullen, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. For more on bike fit and common cycling injuries, go to moveforwardpt.com. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com radio.